Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday, Erev Tishabov. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We've been uh, over-anxious to conclude the series on Europe and the Jews by Rabbi Beryl Wine. Once that concludes, we'll get to our introduction for Eicha and Kinnis for tonight. Uh, and there will be uh, a Kinnis service tomorrow morning live on the air. My thanks to Rabbi Goldwasser in advance for uh, agreeing to do that again with me this year. Um, so that's our Tisha B'Av. And then uh, Wednesday, Matis is here. Thursday and Friday, a big thank you to the Inbal Hotel presenting our um, uh, programs from Israel. Thursday with Yom NCSY. Big thank you to the OU and NCSY. And, of course, Friday at Michlela with the NCSY summer programs. Big thank you to uh, the OU, NCSY, and the NCSY summer programs. So... A lot of wonderful things happening this week, immediately heading to Israel to uh, do programming right after Tisha B'Av, which is a great feeling, and I'm glad we're able to do that and present it to you here at JM in the AM. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his series um, Europe and the Jews, 10 lectures, five in part one, five in part two. We've had the honor of uh, presenting them. We actually spoke with him live on the air Friday morning, which was nice. Uh, So we'll do this. Um, do the complete lecture, the final one in this series, Europe and Israel Today. It's called Europe and Israel Today. Rabbi Beryl Wine, this is Erev Tishabov, and it's JM in the AM. The uh, uh, final lecture in this series regarding Europe and the Jews, and uh, the previous lectures have reviewed uh, the various stages of Jewish life in Europe and of European life vis-a-vis the Jews. It's basically not a very happy story, uh, culminating in the Second World War and the Holocaust, but the story continues even after that, as we are well aware today, and uh, it's on uh, today's world uh, that I want to concentrate tonight. In 1945, when the war ended in Europe, uh, most of Europe was in a shambles. Germany was completely destroyed, as was uh, Poland, most of the Baltic states, a great deal of the Soviet Union. And uh, the economy and the structure of Europe uh, was changed in a fashion that you would never be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. All of the great empires were gone. England uh, hung on for another few years. Uh, But by 1950, it was clear that the British Empire had also ended. And uh, Europe uh, was left uh, bereft, without resources. It also suffered the coldest winter in many, many decades. There was a shortage of coal and food, uh, and there were uh, literally millions and millions of Europeans that were displaced. Not only displaced, but uh, forcibly removed. For instance, the Soviet Union moved uh, quite a few million people. There were Volga Germans, ethnic Germans that had lived in the Soviet Union, uh, that lived in Russia for uh, centuries. 
anyone with a German background was immediately sent back to Germany. Uh, Poland took over East Prussia and they sent all the Germans, the Prussians, back. Uh, there was a estimated 12 million people on the move, one way or another. Uh, the Soviet Union demanded that all of its war prisoners who still were alive, most of the Soviet prisoners died in German camps, but those that were still alive, they demanded their return. And even though uh, the prisoners themselves uh, did not want to go back because they knew what awaited them in Stalin's gulag, Nevertheless, uh, the Allies, the United States, Britain, France, sent back all the Russians who were arrested and sent to Siberia, most of whom died there. In this mix, uh, there were a few hundred thousand Jews uh, that had somehow survived the Holocaust. And the question arose, what to do with them? What shall we do with them? So the Jews attempted first uh, to return to their homes. And uh, about 50,000 Jews returned to Poland. When they came back to Poland after the Holocaust, uh, they were met with pogroms. Uh, the Poles uh, themselves attempted to complete the work that the Germans had begun, especially in Kielce, where uh, Jews were murdered at the railroad station, uh, so that it became obvious that Jewish life in Poland had no future. The uh, Soviet Union, at the onset of 1946, opened its borders to allow people to leave. It forced people to leave, but they allowed people to leave also. And tens of thousands of Jews left, Jews who uh, were uh, deep in the Soviet Union during the war. But where were they going to go? And since Europe was destitute, it had no funds to absorb any refugees, uh, then uh, the Allies created what they called displaced person camps, DP camps. Many of the DP camps were where the concentration camps were. And in those DP camps, which were populated mainly by Jews, because Jews were the displaced persons, everybody else had somewhere to go, so to speak. They had a national entity. The Jews had none. And the Jews met uh, a great deal of anti-Semitism from the Allies. General George Patton, who was a famous American general during the war, uh, was a noted anti-Semite and treated the Jews very badly in the area under his command. So you had this uh, ferment uh, that the Jews evidently felt that they had no place in Europe. Now, in 1948, uh, General Marshall, who was then the American Foreign Secretary, his Secretary of State, came up with the famous Marshall Plan, where the United States, in effect, rebuilt Europe. And it did so, uh, it rebuilt uh, not only uh, France, 
and the Allies, it rebuilt Germany as well. That was the Cold War between Russia and the United States, between the Soviet Union and the United States, and uh, this uh, affected everything that uh, would happen with the Jews in Europe. England still controlled Palestine, and it was reluctant to give it up. Uh, it still had the Suez Canal in Egypt. It still had the Iraqi oil fields. And therefore, uh, it uh, felt that its linchpin in the Middle East was Palestine. The British kept, in effect, after the war, the same white paper that they had issued in 1939 before the war. Meaning, in effect, Jewish immigration was limited to a trickle. 15,000 Jews, you know, you got 250,000 in Europe alone in the DP camps, and uh, the British uh, were under a new government uh, headed by Clement Attlee, a labor government. Now, labor, when it was in the opposition, was always pro-Zionist. One of the rules is that when you're in the opposition, you're for us. When you get the power, so then the things change. And uh, the British Foreign Secretary was a man by the name of Ernest Bevan. Bevan immediately announced that the Jews should not push to the head of the queue, meaning that England had a lot of problems and that the Jews were not number one. And he wasn't going to push it. And in effect, uh, England now uh, closed the doors of Palestine to Jewish immigration. Uh, the Zionist movement uh, organized an underground to bring refugees from Europe to the land of Israel. It was only a trickle, but it gained uh, worldwide attention. And uh, the uh, Jews... Uh, in the land of Israel, uh, cooperated by hiding any Jew that came into the country. They hid them in kibbutzim and cities, etc., so that the British could not find them. So Britain therefore instituted a blockade. The British Navy in the Mediterranean uh, prevented uh, any of the refugee ships from coming. Some eventually landed in Haifa, but they were sent back. And Britain made a large prison camp on the island of Cyprus, which it then controlled, and uh, 30,000 Jews were shipped off to Cyprus, again to live behind a barbed wire and a uh, internment. The uh, Zionist movement somehow asked that for 100,000 Jews to be left into the land of Israel. Why? It was a magic number, 100,000. Uh, it really, they made a mistake, England, because if they would have agreed, so then they would be able to say, listen, we gave you 100,000, now what do you want from us? But uh, England uh, refused under all circumstances. And you had the famous uh, ship, the Exodus, with 4,000 people aboard, was sent back to Germany by England. Public opinion turned against England. 
world opinion. And because of that, therefore, they made commissions. There was an, an, an Anglo-British commission. There was a UN commission. Uh, and they all recommended the same thing, that 100,000 Jews be allowed in the country. Eventually, uh, they, the United Nations Commission recommended partitioning the country, the two-state solution, which has been on the table for 75 years. And uh, they drew up a plan. Under the plan, the uh, Arab part of Palestine would be uh, much larger than the Jewish part, and the Jewish part would be truncated. It wouldn't even be contiguous. The Zionist movement accepted. They said, you know, better a third of a loaf than none. But uh, the Arabs in the Bobby Eden's immortal phrase, never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They refused under all circumstances. Finally, in November 1947, the United Nations Assembly voted on the matter. Imagine if the United Nations Assembly today would have to vote. <laughs> you see, uh, timing is everything. And uh, by all sorts of uh, machinations, uh, the uh, resolution passed, got the two-thirds necessary, and the Arab uh, states walked out of the uh, General Assembly. The next day, the war began. The war began in 47, and it lasted almost till 1950, the War of Independence. But the State of Israel came into being, and it came into being with much better borders than what the United Nations had given them. And immediately, the State of Israel opened its doors and absorbed uh, the 250,000 that wanted to come into the country. Now you have to imagine the country only had 600,000 Jews. You're taking in almost another third added to it. The country was desperately poor. Uh, there was food rationing. Uh, there was no housing. It was not a pleasant uh, situation. Now, the European countries uh, looked at the situation as a way, so to speak, to solve their Jewish problem. More than that, to solve their Jewish conscience, because the Holocaust was very fresh, and there was a tremendous sense of something disastrous that happened here in Europe. And you had the first books written, you know, Wiesel's book and Sartre's book. Other people wrote books already. So uh, Europe initially was very pro-Israel. Uh, the French helped the Israelis acquire nuclear energy and nuclear power and nuclear ability. Uh, Germany under Adenauer uh, made a reparations agreement uh, to uh, refund uh, part of the loot that they took. Uh, these were all done uh, because there were two mindsets in Europe. One mindset in Europe was that they were all victims. Nobody ever did anything. They were the victims. And the average German, he was the victim of Hitler. 
the Austrians they were occupied the Poles they were occupied they never did anything they were never complicit in it and that remains an attitude until today Europe has yet to face up to what it did but a second mindset was that the Jewish state would solve a lot of problems now in 1948 when the state was declared uh, Truman and the United States was the first country to recognize the state of Israel as a state the second country was the Soviet Union in fact it's one of the rare moments in the whole history of the UN during that period of time where the Soviet Union and the United States voted on the same issue the same way now what was Stalin's uh, reckoning here what did he think well he was misled by the Israeli communists he thought that Israel would become a satellite of the Soviet Union just as Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the Baltic states and everybody else where the Soviet Communist Party dominated so that was his shoehorn to get into the Middle East he'd get into the Middle East through Tel Aviv but uh, it was a miscalculation because the uh, even though the country was leftist and socialist it was not communist and it was not really Marxist and in the Cold War uh, Ben-Gurion chose to side with America not with the Soviet Union from that moment on beginning in let's say uh, 1951-52 the Soviet Union became a bitter enemy of the state of Israel and it remains until today the greatest source of European hatred of the state of Israel is from the left which is inspired by Soviet propaganda even though the Soviet Union is gone already but after 70 years of it it baked into their bones and the Soviet Union attempted a number of times to destroy the state of Israel it encouraged Nasser in 1967 in the Six Day War and supplied him with all the airplanes he needed so again in a uh, ironic thing uh, France supported Israel by selling them planes the United States didn't sell planes to Israel then so the Israeli Air Force was made up of uh, mysteries of the other French airplanes if it wouldn't have been for France uh, then who knows what would have happened in 1973 the Soviet Union uh, supplied both Syria and Egypt and uh, then created uh, vast anti-aircraft systems and missiles that uh, gave the Arabs uh, initially great successes in the Yom Kippur War and on the diplomatic front the Soviet Union broke relations with Israel in 1967 and did not restore them until the Soviet Union failed and it uh, did everything possible to undermine the state of Israel it uh, reprinted the protocols of the elders of Zion 
that famous uh, bogus anti-Semitic work, translated it into Arabic, and distributed it in millions of copies in the Arabic world. Uh, it uh, supported uh, with its satellites all of the anti-Israel resolutions that come up every year in the United Nations. It was the one that uh, uh, was the author of the Zionism is Racism uh, resolution. So it left a, a residue, a pool of tremendous anti-Israel, anti-Jewish poison that has infected Europe. Because uh, Europe in the Cold War had many fellow travelers, especially amongst the intelligentsia. The universities have always been left. The question is how left? And it found an audience in the universities. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, so even though communism to a certain extent had been disproven, the poison that it spread had not been eliminated. And that's pretty much the situation today. Uh, BDS movements all over the world are basically left. Uh, and what is it with the left? Uh, well, there's two things that Europe learned. First of all, as I mentioned before, that we're always on the side of the victim because in World War II, we destroyed the victims. So we have to do complete penance and we have to always be on the side of the victim. Who's the victim here? Well, one side is successful, relatively speaking, wealthy, stable, has the best army in the Middle East, is a uh, technological power. And the other side is never. The other side is, uh, you know, uh, doesn't win Nobel Prizes, doesn't uh, invent uh, Microsoft chips. It's downtrodden, it's primitive. So who's the victim? So it must be the victim. And by European logic, standards, understanding of the situation, we have to always support the victim. And therefore, uh, Europe is very, very anti-Israel. Now, it cannot be completely anti-Israel because it needs Israel for certain things and because of the fact that it still has a residue of conscience from what happened in the Second World War. But basically, Europe is very anti-Israel, and there's very little that Israel can do, you know, uh, about it, because in the eyes of the intelligentsia, in the eyes of uh, Europe, uh, the, the Palestinians are the victims, the Arabs are the victims. And how can you be on the side of the victims? Yeah, so it must be that the other side is the aggressor, it must be that the other side must be the one that's guilty. And that is pretty much the European mindset today. So you have like the foreign minister of Sweden, whatever her problem is, but it's almost an obsession with her. But what does it have to do with Sweden? There's another issue that impinges here, 
I think it's a subtle issue, but I think it's very important. Uh, Europe, uh, to a great extent, is no longer religious. Uh, the church has lost uh, almost all of its influence in Europe. Uh, most Europeans don't go to church anymore. Polls keep on showing that most Europeans don't believe in God. They don't believe in any religion. And because of that, therefore, uh, you cannot speak to them that this is our ancient homeland or that it was promised to Abraham or that somehow uh, it's the basis of what used to be called the Judeo-Christian culture. There is no Judeo-Christian culture anymore. It's a completely secular culture. There never was an Abraham. And therefore, uh, uh, arguments that may have resonated uh, even 50 years ago simply have no place today because uh, it doesn't exist. The... uh, the irony is that the uh, the Catholic Church in Europe, at least uh, officially, has renounced anti-Semitism, has recognized the state of Israel, uh, the Pope's visit here, but uh, its effect is almost uh, non-existent because uh, the uh, basic uh, Catholic uh, masses in Europe are dwindling. And the church itself faces such enormous problems, internal problems, that it really doesn't have time for us. And therefore, uh, an affinity that once existed does not exist anymore. Uh, There was a time, for instance, when the Protestants in England were Zionistic, uh, just like the Christian fundamentalists in the United States today are Zionistic, because it's part of their faith, so to speak. Part of their belief is that somehow the Jews have to come back to the land of Israel and then uh, the rest of their scenario will play out. But uh, if uh, that group uh, has almost disappeared, I saw that uh, it says that uh, less than uh, 40% of the population of England attends uh, a religious institution. And don't forget, England has a lot of Muslims who do attend. So it means that the Christian core of England has withered away. So any support for the state of Israel based on religious grounds uh, really uh, doesn't exist anymore. In the United States, it still does. That's the whole idea of the fundamentalists in America that are so pro-Zionistic. Their motivation is their faith, but nevertheless, uh, we are the beneficiaries of it. It does help. But in Europe, that doesn't exist. And uh, the popes themselves, uh, this pope has as his agenda social welfare. It has very little to do with the church. So then the church is no longer a matter of faith. It's a a welfare agency, which is very nice, very necessary, but that's not religion. That's not uh, the classical view of what the church stood for.
So in the Europe, uh, you, first you had the, the Soviet Union, then you have the decline of the church, and you have the feeling of victimhood, that we have to be on the side of the victim, and the victim is always the one that is weaker, that doesn't win the wars, and uh, because of that, therefore, uh, you have this wellspring of anti-Israel, uh, almost obsessive behavior that uh, permeates Europe. Now, Europe today faces an enormous challenge from the uh, immigration of millions of Muslims. The uh, history of Europe always was that it was the bulwark of Christianity against Islam. Uh, fought wars, not just the Crusades, but uh, throughout uh, Europe and throughout history, uh, the Europeans uh, fought to hold back the Islamic tide from reaching Europe. And uh, the borderline was where the Ottoman Empire, which was Muslim, uh, touched the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was Christian. That border was erased by the First World War. And after the Second World War, uh, England had a policy that if you were a citizen of one of its colonies, you had a right to emigrate to England. And that brought in hundreds of thousands, eventually millions, of non-Christians, of Muslims, into the country. Now, the question always is with immigration, whether or not the immigrants will integrate into the culture of the country, or whether or not they will not. They, they will remain isolated and separate. In the United States, we had the great uh, melting pot idea uh, that anybody that came to America was thrown into this pot and would come out to be American, whatever American meant. But then it would no longer speak the uh, language uh, except English, and it would adopt American culture. Uh, that uh, idea was certainly in France, in England, in Germany, throughout Europe. And Europeans prided themselves on their culture. That's what it meant to be European. It meant going to the symphony, it meant the opera, it meant uh, the university, it meant all of those things. Here came a very large number of immigrants who are not interested to go to the opera, <laughs> who don't go to the uh, Barbican Hall to hear the, the, uh, the London Symphony, who want to continue to speak Arabic, who live in their own enclaves, and did not integrate into the country. This was true in France as well. Uh, France uh, controlled Algeria and parts of Morocco. And uh, in fact, uh, the, till the time of de Gaulle, uh, held that Algeria was a province of France. It was like living in Paris. He lived in Algiers. And when the... Uh, uh, France was forced to give up Algeria, so you had hundreds of thousands of Algerians that moved into France proper. Many of them were Jews. 
that the large Sephardic population in France, which is the main Jewish population, is really North African in its origin. But you had uh, a large number of Muslims that moved in also. And they have refused to accommodate themselves to, to, accommodate themselves to French culture. They have their own culture, their own language, their own faith, their own beliefs. And also a part of the problem of the immigrant generation is that it usually is poverty-stricken. The first generation has a terrible time. That was true here in Israel as well. We all know what it feels like to be an immigrant, but we're blessed that most of us came with some resources, or we have family here or something, you know, we have some sort of support system. But if you come alone, so what kind of job can you get? You can be a dishwasher for uh, 15 shekel an hour. It's the next generation that, uh, you know, you work for 15 shekel an hour, you save up whatever you can, you send your kid to the university, and he becomes a doctor or a lawyer, etc., and that's how we get out of it. That was the uh, procedure, at least in the United States, where it worked for a long period of time. But it never worked in Europe. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, you have this mass of people who are not integrated into Europe and who are terribly frustrated, poverty-ridden, crime-ridden, and have very little hope. And such a group always will find scapegoats, will always find who to hate, and it's a fertile ground for anti-Jewish uh, propaganda, anti-Israel propaganda. And uh, because of their numbers in a democratic society which holds elections, uh, they are a very strong influence. And the more that the, uh, the Muslim situation in Europe uh, takes hold, uh, the less hope there will be that uh, Europe will in any way uh, be friendly or hospitable towards us. So that's a reality. We can't, there's not much we can do about that. Oh, it is. But the reality of Europe today is uh, that it is, uh, to put it mildly, not our friend and not, doesn't want to be our friend. And uh, how to deal with it. Now, you have ancient Jewish communities in Europe that still exist. There are still a half a million Jews in France, though there has been a uh, noticeable immigration from France. And you can uh, hear it on our streets. But uh, 15,000 French Jews came, but uh, 500,000 are still in France. Uh, the Jewish community in England uh, dwindled from 450,000 to about 250,000. The last few years, it has increased slowly. But again, uh, you got 250,000 Jews in England and you have a few million Muslims. The Jews are not going to be uh, the deciding factor in English life. And there are Jewish pockets throughout Europe. Interestingly enough, one of the largest the Jewish pockets in Europe is in Germany. Uh, you had uh, 50,000 Russian Jews settled in Germany, 
because they could get uh, reparations and jobs and welfare and all sorts of governmental aid. And you have many Israelis who have settled in Europe for business reasons. But the great ancient communities like in Amsterdam and uh, Copenhagen and uh, other places have dwindled almost to nothing. And uh, there has been an attempt, especially by Ronald Lauder and others, uh, to reinvigorate Jewish life in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in, uh, and then the enormous uh, investment in uh, the former Soviet Union. But uh, I think it's pretty clear that the future of the Jewish people does not lie in Riga or Petersburg or <laughs> Kiev, and that uh, we have to do what we can for the Jews who are living there, but that's not the future of the Jewish people. So Europe is closing down for us. It's a long story, 1,500 years, uh, many, many events, many occurrences. Uh, it was the seat of Jewish life, uh, for uh, such a long period of time. To a great extent, we were in Europe longer than we ever were in the land of Israel. And uh, when Reform said that uh, Berlin is our Jerusalem, uh, it resonated because Jerusalem was far away and far off and a dream, and Berlin was real, and there was a Jewish community there. How uh, these things change, so we can explain them uh, historically, uh, we can explain them uh, sociologically, but, we, but there's always a mysterious air to this. It's as though uh, in heaven they, uh, they want to turn out the lights, they want to say that it's over. And uh, that, that certainly seems to be the case. It certainly drives much of what occurs in Europe today. Now, in Europe attempted to prevent wars. Don't forget, uh, Europe suffered terribly in the 20th century. The European wars between uh, the powers in uh, Europe. So uh, their experiment is called the European Union which to a certain extent has reduced nationalism amongst the countries of Europe. Open borders, one currency, even one culture. And uh, the European Union uh, is, uh, it's unwieldy because of the fact that it has so many countries involved. It's economically dangerous, has been proven over the last two, three years, you, know, you have countries like Greece and Spain and Italy that are uh, economic failures and they have to be bailed out by Germany and France. Eventually, uh, such systems don't lend themselves to success. Uh, the European Union attempted to copy the United States of America, where there are different states in the Union but there's one federal government. Uh, the uh, European Parliament uh, 
does not have the powers of the United States uh, Congress and the federal system is not as strong but that is the direction that they want to go and again uh, the European Union has proved itself to be uh, in the main not favorable for the state of Israel for various reasons uh, that I have already outlined it's part of the European culture if the European Union will become stronger so then uh, I think we'll have greater problems if it will become weaker and more fragmented as perhaps is likely so then I think the problems will be easier to deal with because you can deal with individual countries and the uh, stature of the European Union will not be so imposing in any event uh, I think that it's clear that uh, as far as the Jewish people are concerned Europe has had it and uh, the uh, terrorist attacks and all of the other things that go on are just symptoms of the underlying truth uh, that uh, our European adventure has ended and that uh, we'll have to see what the rest of the exile looks like where that is heading it's uh, not not simple Uh, there are many many problems on the horizon for instance Canada which had a very pro-Israel government for so many years now all of a sudden has a very anti-Israel government and uh, and the Jews in Canada who always prided themselves on uh, their influence and on uh, what could be done now find themselves uh, pretty much shut out now I'm not saying that God forbid anything's going to happen to Canadian Jewry but these things that occur and the United States is going to have an election believe it or not <laughs> and uh, you, you simply don't know who to pray for <laughs> so we have no idea what, what is going to happen so it's a, in an uncertain world Uh, there are many many problems and the problems reflect themselves in Jewish life but I think Europe has a certainty to us uh, that it has ended and that uh, the next chapter will be written somewhere else it won't be written on the continent of Europe where Jews lived and developed uh, for uh, 15 centuries and were a vital part of its history. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. My thanks, of course, to Rabbi Wine. Amazing lectures. And now we really get into the heart of our Tisha B'Av programming as we begin to present Rabbi Wine on the issues of Eicha and Kinnis and the different things that will dominate our day, both tonight and tomorrow. J.M. in the A.M., I thank you all for tuning in and being part of this. It's Monday. It's Erev Tisha B'Av. Don't forget, we are going to conclude Tisha B'Av tomorrow with The Missing Link. That is the name of uh, the program that's being led by Charlie Harari. The Missing Link featuring Charlie Harari and an amazing list of guest presenters. Um, What is The Missing Link to bringing the Geula is the question. They'd like your answers, frankly. They'd like your answers. Radio at projectinspire.com. Radio at projectinspire.com. The program begins at 6.30 here at the Nahum Single Network tomorrow night, 6.30 Eastern Time. 
perfect way to wrap up uh, Tishabov. Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. Go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org for the sites where the um, where the different programs are going to be taking place. Uh, powerofspeech.org. We'll speak to Michael Rothschild later from the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. They'll give us all the information we need about tomorrow. Um, Isaiah Wall is a mincha tomorrow. Mincha tomorrow, bring your talismans fill into the Isaiah Wall. Mincha tomorrow, bring your talismans fill into the Isaiah Wall. 2 p.m. in solidarity with the Jews and Jewish communities around the world. Again, bring your talismans fill in tomorrow. Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City. 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City. Simple as that. Okay. Um, we'll start. We're going to interrupt in a couple of minutes because we have our news coming up, but we'll start our Echa overview with our barrel wine here at JM in the AM. The book of Echa is read on the night of Tishabot. And we are having a little trouble here. We'll... Let us go to the uh, beginning of Eicha again and see if we can get this to sound to drop better here at JM in the AM. One of the constant themes in the uh, Megillah of Eicha is the uh, memory of what uh, Yerushalayim once was. It's the sense of loss. And really, uh, psychologically, in human life, the lingering effects of tragedies, God forbid, is always the sense of loss. The sense of what once was and no longer is. So we see, for instance, in Boss of Zion, Zohra Yerushalayim Yemeyonyo Umrudeha. Yerushalayim in its exile remembered how the Churban occurred, remembered that it once was great, and that now it is brought low. All of the beloved things, all of the good things that Yerushalayim had in previous years are all gone. The people have fallen into the hands of the enemy. And there is no one to help. I, I've always felt that to uh, really have the background for the book of Eicha, one has to know a little of the book of Yirmiyahu, it's the, the prophecies of Yirmiyahu himself. And uh, Yirmiyahu, uh, in his prophecies, uh, decries the reliance of the kings of Yehuda on help from foreign governments, especially from Egypt. Uh, Ju Judah had an alliance with Egypt, and in the event that the uh, Babylonians attacked, uh, the Egyptians were supposed to come to the aid of Yehuda. But aware of the alliance, attacked Egypt first 
and, in all practical sense, destroyed the Egyptian army. And then, so, uh, then when he came up from the south, from Egypt, to conquer Judah, there was no one left to come to the aid of Yehuda. But the Nodhi cautions that even if Mitzrayim would have been there, they wouldn't have come to help. That all the promises are only on paper, but that you can't rely on that. And in fact, we see in the Nodhi that he mocks them, and he says, well, where are all of your friends? Where's everybody that was going to support you? Where are your lovers? Meaning the nations of the world. And uh, there's a, uh, all of these words are said in prophecy, so there's an eerie sense here of the isolation of Jewish people in times of terrible trouble, such as the Second World War, the Holocaust, or uh, the Six-Day War in 1967, or to even a lesser extent today, but still to some extent, our situation in the world today. He knows everyone. Nobody's come to help you. Nobody's interested in your case. Rauhu Tsarim, oppressors, enemies, saw the situation of the, of the Jewish people. And they laughed over uh, the uh, destruction of the land of Israel and uh, Jerusalem, the Jewish people, and not, they were not, not only were they not concerned, they enjoyed it. So anyone who has read uh, any books on the Holocaust, there are a number of books I think that should be read painful as they are to read. One is by Martin Gilbert, called the Holocaust. The other is uh, The War Against the Jews uh, by Lucy Davidovitz. And then the third book is Edith Wiesel's book called Night. Uh, I think that those three books will uh, more than suffice. But the, it's, it's the utter desperation of being alone, of being laughed at, of being mocked, which the Novi describes here, the symbol of the Purim. Now the Novi turns to the question of why. The question of why is always uh, the most difficult question to answer. They say uh, that there once was a philosophy exam at the Sorbonne, and the professor put on the blackboard, one question, why? And there only were two correct answers possible. One correct answer was because, and the other was why not? So why does not have easy answers? Especially when we deal with the inscrutable uh, God who's infinity defies our finite sense of logic and of fairness. So we don't know why. And because we don't know why, so then the problem is compounded. 
So then it becomes a matter of faith. Being able to accept, so to speak, God's judgment, whether it be on a personal level, God forbid, or on a national level. Those people who give uh, glib answers to why, who know, for instance, why a Holocaust occurred, in my personal opinion, are doing us a great disservice, as well as being very arrogant. Because how do they know God's mind? So here the note says, but again, you have to see it in the backdrop of his constant orations to the Jewish people. For 25 years he's telling them this is going to happen because of the fact uh, that you uh, are idolaters, because of the fact that you're corrupt, because of the fact that uh, all of the uh, servants of God are not godly. It's only a job. So, there's a sin involved here. As there always is a sin. But to identify the sin, one has to be a naughty. And therefore, it became someone that is excluded. It became an untouchable. All of those who previously gave honor to the Jewish people and to Jerusalem now treated her cheaply. She lost any stature in their eyes. ervoso. They have seen her nakedness. So here, this is an idea that we find in the Nevi'im all the time. Really, uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, there are very few people in the world who are attractive naked. That's why we have clothes. We have ambiance, we have atmosphere, that's why in a restaurant uh, it's always dark. Because the attraction is, uh, so to speak, in the impression rather than the reality. So in the Tanakh, whenever they speak about nudity, they don't speak about it as being attractive, but rather as being, in a sense, repulsive. The glamour has been taken away. The mystery has been taken away. J.M. in the A.M. with Rai Beryl Wine and uh, the beginning of Eicha. He's speaking about the th- first two chapters of Eicha. Of course, we read Eicha tonight. It's a Monday morning on this uh, Erev Tishabov. J.M. in the A.M. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored Digital radio around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. I want to thank Rabbi Goldwasser in advance. He'll be doing Kinnis with us tomorrow morning. And I thank him for that. Um, excuse me, that'll be happening tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. So thank you to Rabbi Goldwasser for that. And um, Wednesday, Matis will be sitting in with stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. For the 10th of Av, which is our tradition, Thursday from Yom NCSY, Friday from Michlelet with the NCSY summer programs. We are in Israel right after Tisha B'Av, and we are looking forward to it. Simple as that. Monday morning on this era of Tisha B'Av, Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for our Monday is next. We say Boker Tov from JMM.
גלי צהל השעה שתיים, כאן רן יבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. אוסטריה גזרה מאסר עולם על פעיל חמאס, משוחרר עסקת שליט שתכנן פיגוע בירושלים. כתבנו יותם לחובסקי. הצעיר בן 27 משוחרר עסקת שליט נעצר בשנה שעברה בבית מחסה לפליטים באוסטריה, לאחר שיצר קשר עם שני פלסטינים במטרה לשכנע אותם לבצע פיגועים בירושלים. מידע שהוא עבר מכוחות הביטחון בישראל. בשיחה עם הפלסטינים הנחה אותם הצעיר לזרוק רימונים למקומות הומי אדם בירושלים ואמר שהוא גאה להיות חלק מחמאס. צ'ארלי, אביו של אלאור עזריה, אומר בריאיון מיוחד לאראל סגל ולגלית דיסטל אדבריאן, בני לא צריך להתנצל, אך נשקול זאת בעד הקלה בעונש. איך בן אדם יכול להתנצל על מעשה שהוא עשה מבחינתו נכון? אם תגיע הצעה ממשית ומיידית עם המתקה של העונש בצורה משמעותית, ייתכן, ועל פי המלצות של העורר דין, נגיב בצורה כזו או אחרת. שיטת הרגל של אליעזר פישמן, הנאמן דורש כי רעייתו של איש העסקים טובה תיחשב גם היא כשותפה מלאה בחובות בעלה. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה, תומר ורון. במסמך שהגיש היום עורך דין בנקל לבית המשפט, הוא מכנה את התחמקותו של פישמן מתשלום החוב כמכת מדינה, ולכן דורש להחשיב את אשתו של פישמן כשותפה מלאה לחובותיו. במסמך כתב בנקל, הכרעת השופט תכריע בשאלה האם חייבים מתוחכמים יכולים להשתמש ברעיותיהם כמפלט חסין מפשיטת רגל, ודרכן להוסיף ולחיות ברמת פאר מנקרת עיניים. ראש המועצה האזורית שומרון יוסי דגן הודיע שיעבור לבית המכפלה בחברון. דגן הצטרף ביחד עם משפחתו לכמאה האנשים ששוהים שם מהשבוע שעבר, בניגוד להנחיות הצבא. מדווחת לראשונה כתבתנו בשטחים כרמל דנגו. דגן נמצא כעת בדרכו אל בית המכפלה בחברון, שם מתגורר עם אשתו ושלושת ילדיו הקטנים עד מוצאי שבת. מאז שלישי האחרון מתבצרים במבנה כמאה מתנחלים שטוענים כי רכשו אותו כדת וכדין. מדגן נמסר בתגובה, מדובר בעליית מדרגה חמורה באפליה כלפי תושבי יהודה ושומרון. אנחנו מצופים מראש הממשלה לעצור את העוולה הזאת. לשון התגובה. כתב אישום הוגש היום נגד מורה בבית ספר יסודי בטבריה, בחשד לביצוע מעשים מגונים בשניים מתלמידיו. על פי כתב האישום, המורה, בן 27, יצא יחד עם התלמידים מכיתתו והוביל אותם למקום מבודד בבית הספר, שם ביצע בהם את זממו. הוועדה המיוחדת לעניין חוק הלאום בכנסת החלה דיוניה בנוסח החוק. בני בגין, חבר הכנסת מהליכוד, טוען בריאיון עם רינו צרור כי הנוסח הנוכחי נועד לפגוע ביסודות הדמוקרטיים שנכתבו בחוק יסוד כבוד האדם וחירותו. בעצמי שמעתי את אחד השרים המשפיעים בתחום זה. All right, we lost, unfortunately, we lost our connection to our news from Israel. I apologize for that, but at least the headlines uh, got into our broadcast this morning. Uh, we, are, um, we are listening to Rabbi Beryl Wine on the first two chapters of Eicha. We read Eicha tonight, Tisha B'Av, of course. Uh, later, we'll check in with Michael Rothschild, Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. I do remind you that tomorrow we have an amazing opportunity for everybody to end the fast with the Charlie Harari starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time here at the Nahum Siegel Network, so keep that in mind. That's an amazing opportunity tomorrow. Also tomorrow, by Goldwasser is going to be doing Kinnis with us, so get ready for that. And uh, I hope you'll be tuned in. Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine on the subject of Eicha at JM in the AM. I think it was in the magazine of the New York Times uh, about the rise of sexual dysfunction in our society. It's a, a great field to go into because 
and almost no normal person left. And they attribute it simply to the fact that uh, uh, sexual immorality, uh, that all the standards have been removed so that it's so exposed, and it's exposed uh, when a child is six, seven years old, uh, so that uh, in all of the knowledge, the sense of mystery is lost, and the sense of mystery is lost, and instead of becoming attractive, it becomes repulsive. I remember when I grew up, which uh, is a long time ago, but I still remember it, that uh, there's a Gemara in Ksubis, uh dealing with Taftes uh, in the first uh, block of Gemara. You'll notice the Gemara doesn't shy away from any subject. Gemara sees human life as always being holy. Everything. We know any people in the world that make a, a blessing after coming out of the bathroom. There are no scatological jokes in Judaism. There are no obscenities in Hebrew. All the obscenities have to be borrowed from a different language. Because we view the human body and human behavior as essentially godly. And that includes uh, sexual behavior as well. So uh, the Gemara there discusses that if a man married, he marries a woman on the presumption that she's a virgin and he finds that she's not a virgin. And so the Gemara discusses, you know, whether, whether, whether that's grounds for annulment, whether it's grounds for not paying the tzubit, or whatever, etc. Does it prove anything? Whole very difficult uh, block in the Gemara there. There are major ligatosis and on it. It's one of the major wondish in Yonim, right? Well, we, we were 14 years old, and I'm telling you the truth. We were 14 years old, and we didn't know what the heck they were talking about. The Rebbe didn't explain it either. So that's like, you know, so I'm Neanderthal, right? Because today, any four-year-old kid watching television knows already everything. There's no sense... There's no mystery left in life. And the loss of the sense of mystery that contributes to all sorts of dysfunctions. And the whole concept of Taras HaMishpocha, etc., all of that was to keep the mystery going. But when it's all gone, so then, you know, it's just plain nothing. There's a famous uh, statement by the Klichemdo, Klichemdo, was written by a great Polish Gaon who lived in the early part of the 20th century. Mayor Don Plutsky was his name. He was a Gaon Olam. He was a tremendous, tremendous genius in learning, and he was an orator. He was one of the leaders of Polish Jewry. So he has a safer called Klichemda. And the Klichemda goes through every parsha of the Torah and discusses halachic, Topics that are found in the Parsha. But it does it in the Polish fashion, which means uh, that the uh, real pupil, I mean, he could put the elephant through the eye of a needle. Unlike the style of learning which today is popular in the yeshivas, which is uh, the uh, brisk Lithuanian style of uh, cold analysis, 
not given to uh, mental flights of fancy, but you should know that there were other types of learning as well. And it could be that your grandchildren will look at us and say, you know, what are we, that wasn't learning, you know. That's not the derech. So I want you to know that there is one derech. So he's the master of the Polish derech. Anyway, once in a while he says a dvar He says a hashkofa theme in the parsha. So he says, for instance, in the parsha of Rashis. So it says that after uh, Adam and Eve uh, have sinned, so it says by uh, the says, "Where are you?" And he says, "I'm sorry, we're naked here." Can't appear before you. They both knew that they were naked. Until then, they didn't know they were naked. Now they knew they were naked. So Rashi says, what does naked mean? Rashi says they had one mitzvah, not to eat from the Eitzadas, not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And now they lost that mitzvah. So when the Tzachumish says they were naked, meaning that they were stripped of their mitzvah. So when Mayor Don asks, they had another mitzvah. They had the mitzvah through a They had the mitzvah to, to live together and bring children into the world. That mitzvah they still had. So why did they say they were naked? So he says this insight. He says once they sinned, Purvu became just sex. It was not a mitzvah. It was like eating or sleeping. The element of emotion, of holiness, of, uh, of, uh, of godliness in the act, that was removed. So when it was removed, so they didn't have it anymore, right? So they were naked. They were stripped. So that's what the Novi says here. They saw your nakedness. So they repelled by you, not attracted by you. Gam Jewish people themselves were brought to a great sigh. Now the word anocho in Hebrew, which literally means a sigh, is more than that. Because I'll say, A sigh breaks half the body of a person. So it's, uh, if we're talking about something that's wrenching. And she turned away. She was rejected by all of her lovers. Now, uh, let's skip a few sukkim to see another theme that the Navi always speaks about. What's a good base? Is there a uniqueness in Jewish suffering? Right? I mean, like it. Five million people have died in Africa over the last uh, decade in wars. Civil wars and uh, disease and malnutrition. Oh, isn't that a Holocaust too? So the Novi addresses that. 
to me, what is most fascinating is that if the Novi stood before us today, he wouldn't have to change a word. He's talking about us, and not, you know. That's why the Megillah survived. And, you know, the Romans don't uh, recite uh, an elegy for the fall of Rome, and the Greeks don't have an elegy for the fall of Greece. And the people in Alexandria don't bemoan the fall of Alexandria. Even the South admits that the Civil War is over. So why do we keep it going? The answer is because if we're talking about current events, there's nobody in the world today that uh, really wants to bring down Rome or Italy or Athens or Greece or it tends to blow up Atlanta, you know, that's not. But we're still where we were. We're as vulnerable as ever, if not more vulnerable. You are passerby. You just pass by in history. You walk by. So don't compare yourselves to me. Is there a pain like my pain? Is there suffering like my suffering? Does anyone have a history of such suffering? That the Rabboni Shalom has brought upon me. That the Lord has created, breathed upon me. On the day of his anger. So here the Navi speaks to the uniqueness of Jewish experience. So the Yud Zion. Perisha Sion Biodeho. Zion has spread out its hand in desperation. Pain Menachemlo. And there is no one to comfort him. Again, the same theme repeated. Sivo Hashem Le'akov Sivo Tzoro It is surrounded by enemies. Oisa Yerushalayim Lenido Benei Tzadiku Hashem Kipiyu Maris So there's a concept called Siduk Hadin. Siduk Hadin in its formal sense is the prayer that's recited at every funeral God forbid which we accept God's judgment, even, even though we never answer the question, why? So it's one thing to be, uh, you know, I've been a rabbi for a long, long time, so everything, you, you see everything. It's not easy to deal with. So it's one thing a person reaches an advanced age, so we're all mortal. But God forbid children or young people or especially tragic circumstances. So then what do you say? So there's this concept of tzidukadim. That somehow we accept God's judgment even though we don't understand it. We may not even approve of it, but we accept it. Now, uh, Mincha and Shabbos we recite a portion of Tzidik Adin, the three psukim that are said after the Shimon Esra, 
But that's because both Moshe Rabbeinu and David HaMelech died Shabbos Minchatan. So we accept, we accept mortality. That's basically what we accept, right? Not Simchas Torah. There is a poem that uh, was recited in most Ashkenazic synagogues, but because by then everybody is already half cooked, you know, everybody's so happy that nobody notices what the poem says, or no one reads the poem. But the poem says, Moshe makes Milo Yomus. If Moshe Rabbeinu died, then who will not die? So the poem stresses the essential mortality of all of us. So this, uh, the Navi here, is Madzik Nadin, Tzadik Hashem. God is right. I don't know how, I don't know what, but he's right. Kipiu Morisi. Because I have rebelled against his words. So the idea that also uh, is throughout the uh, Megillah is that there is, uh, that there are consequences for everything. No free lunch. For the price. Again, without presuming to read God's mind, but I'm convinced that the Intifada and all the other troubles that we have you know, that's all, uh, you know, there's a, you can't behave the way a lot of the Jewish people have behaved over the last uh, century without paying a price. There is a price. Last week's Parshas, we read the irresistible urge to sermonize. Last week's Parshas, we read that the Jewish people killed Bilam, right? They killed the five kings of Midian, and they killed Bilam. So why did they pick out Bilam? I mean, why, why didn't they kill Bilam, who uh, hired Bilam? Why is Bilam the symbol of uh, the enmity towards the Jewish people? The Meshachachma, the Meir Simcha, the Orsameach, so he uh, says, great insight, and Bilam came and told the Jewish people a posseh that we recite in uh, Rosh Hashanah in the Musaf Shmonesra, Mohibi Doven Beyako God does not see the evil of Jacob, he does not see the corruption that may exist in Israel, Hashem HaLakot Imo, the Lord God is with the Jewish people. The Truas Melech Bo, and the trumpet of the king is sounded with the Jewish people. It's a great posse. But in effect, what he said was, you know, God doesn't care. Do whatever you want, right? Moreover, God doesn't see anything wrong. Well, he be done be He doesn't see that you did anything wrong. What are you worried about? Why are you so nervous? Does God really care whether your tzitzes have eight strings or seven strings? Have you ever heard that before? You will. God care whether you eat meat and milk together? 
lobster. What does he care, right? Why should God care about anything? A lot of problems. He's got to run his own universe, right? Got to make sure a meteor doesn't hurt hit the Earth. So does he really care? Does he care what two consenting adults do? That's what Bilam said. No, he be dumb and God doesn't see anything at all, right? So therefore. Uh, they had uh, a uh, permission from Bilam, so then when the daughters of Midian came, so they said, well, you know, we'll have a good time because God really doesn't care. Don't make a difference. It makes it inside with, with this daughter of Midian or not. It's just a fling. And that, that's how he destroyed the section of the Jewish people. Undermined them because he told them that there are no consequences. So there are consequences. Now again, no one can, short of a novi, uh, can uh, describe for us the consequences. But there's no doubt that there are consequences. So that's what the novi says here. Tzadik Hashem Marisi, I have done wrong. So I have to pay the price. Shimuno Kalami, Uri Mahovi. See my pain. What is the pain? My young men and young women are taken away from me in captivity. So the, uh, the great tragedy always in Jewish life is the loss of the next generation. I had the uh, dinner last night uh, with my cousins from uh, Los Angeles and we were uh, our wives and we were making a reckoning of what happened to our collective family because we and I are the only ones that have religious children or grandchildren only ones that really remain Jewish we have, uh, have many uh, Cousins, once removed, twice removed, who are not Jewish. And I'm certain that uh, that experience is uh, widespread in American Judaism. Often that happened, right? My grandfather was uh, Rosh Yeshiva, he founded a Balozhin, a Rod. How did that happen? That's a tragedy. So our personal tragedy is part of the greater tragedy. And so the tragedy is that the, the, you know that the next generation got swept away. My Rebbe used to say that uh, how can you measure success in life? So he used to say if your grandparents and your grandchildren are both proud of you, then that's Made it pretty well. You think about it, you'll see that's true. Lord, I bless you. You'll get to my age, you'll appreciate it more. I used to tell this to 14 year olds that it was completely wasted. Now it's only 30% uh, wasted. But uh, you get older, you'll, uh, you know, you'll get it. 
So that's the Novi decries. Sulotzai Bahurai Hopu Bashev. I've lost my children. It's estimated that uh, nine out of ten Spaniards have some Jewish blood in them. They're all good practicing Catholics. There were uh, at least 25,000 Jewish children during the Holocaust that were taken and converted to Catholicism. Europe was full of Jews. I was in Prague, I spoke to the uh, Rodham Prague. Rodham Prague, by the way, is a convert to Gare. The Czech was a uh, close friend of uh, the President uh, Havel. So anyway, he told me that he said, I, you know, we were talking about the Jewish community of Prague. So he says there's 1,500 Jews that he knows are Jews, that are real Jews. There are 5,000 people who claim to be Jewish. But he said there are 50,000 people who could be Jewish. So that's what the Novi decries. That, that's what the... That's the subject here of the tragedy. Orosi ahavai, I called my lovers. Heima rimuni, they cheated me. They, uh, when I needed them, they're not there. Kohanai uskenai boir gavo. Kohanim, the elders. So here the Novi, again, you have to see the background. Novi, uh, the Novi Yermio was branded as a defeatist, as being a traitor. And there were other uh, false prophets and false leaders of the people who said, Nothing's going to happen. We don't have to worry about anything. You know, we got the Egyptians on our side. And nothing's going to happen here. So he, and those people were in the, the upper classes who always uh, are unaware of impending trouble. Because they have the most to lose. So they said, uh, well, you know, we'll have enough for ourselves. So he says they're dying of hunger in the streets. Evictu ocho loma. They look for food for themselves because you can't eat gold. The yoshibu esnafsha. Instead they expire. Rei Hashem Kitsarli, Lord's not the Novi, the last Sukim here, he turns to God and he says, all right, I'm guilty, but they're guilty also. Then what right do they have to be uh, so atrocious towards me, so violent towards me? So this again deals with a, a famous philosophical question which exists in the Chumash, and that is why... Uh, were the Egyptians punished if uh, it was decreed that the Jews were supposed to be slaves in Egypt? And Abraham Avinu saw that at the covenant of the Brisbane Absorance, and why should the Egyptians be punished? 
So there are two answers. There are many answers. The two main answers. One is the Rambam and one is the Rambat. The Rambam's theory is explain it by in terms of actuarial science. One of my daughters is an actuary. She worked for a metropolitan life insurance company. So what do the actuaries do? They figure out the probability of how many insurance policies metropolitan life will have to pay out during the coming year. So that they'll know how much cash they have to have on hand. The rest of it they can invest. Now, no actuary, so let's say I'll say uh, 80,000 policies come due. No actuary can tell you which 80,000 policies. But they're accurate within 1% that 80,000 policies will come through. So the Rambam says that was the same thing. God only told Abram that their people would be enslaved. Who will enslave them? God left that up to anybody that wanted to do it. Egyptians chose to do it. They didn't have to do it. That's the Rambam's theory, which is very sophisticated. The Ramban's theory is there's slavery and slavery. You know, you can be nice to your slaves, you can be cruel to your slaves. The Egyptians were not punished for enslaving the Jewish people because that was God's will. They were punished for the cruelty that they had towards them. So here... The uh, Nodi says, uh, he complains about the cruelty. Good, so we have to be defeated. We have to be taken away in war. But, uh, for instance, the United States occupied Japan and rebuilt it. Occupied Italy and rebuilt it. There's, there's a way to lose a war, too. The Russians, when they uh, took over East Germany and the other satellite countries, they made sure that they felt the, the revenge. So he says, They heard that I am broken with my size, I have no comfort. All of my enemies heard of my troubles. So soon they rejoiced in my troubles. It's not them. You did it, God, not them. Evesa yom korosa. You will bring a day and call upon them too. Viyu chamoni. Their turn will come also. The long history of the Jewish people, everyone that has oppressed the Jewish people has eventually fallen. That's a lesson that uh, one would think that the world would learn, but the uh, many lessons that go unnoticed. So uh, in our time, for instance, the collapse of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union was engineered by the Jews, by the refuseliks and the pressure of world Jewry, let my people go, all the demonstrations, everything. That brought down the Soviet Union. I would say, uh, you know, where Sharansky is riding around in a Volvo, and he's a minister in the government, right? And Gorbachev is doing pizza commercials. How's that? So we'll see yet, right? Uh, Churchill said that the uh, 
wheels of history grind exceedingly Rabbi Barrel Wine with the uh, discussion about Eicha here at JM in the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmas Arav Zebin of Yosef Alevi, and Echonishmas Esther Basra of Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Novi Yermio notes, the Kohanim did not say, Aye Hashem, where is Hashem? Our Chachomim ask, what did the Novi mean when he made this statement? After all, we know that Hashem is everywhere. Moreover, why was there specific criticism that was voiced against the Kohanim concerning this omission? The Talmud in Yuma relates that during the last 40 years before the Chorban Beis Amikdosh, the destruction of the Holy Temple, there were certain phenomena which up until that time had been in effect. However, it no longer took place. The large heavy doors of the Hechel, which up until then had miraculously swung open of their own accord in the morning and then it closed in the evening, they no longer did so. The Nirmaravi no longer remained lit throughout the entire night until the next day. The red thread no longer turned white. And lastly, the Garol Hashem, the lot for Hashem, did not come up in the right hand of the Kohen Gadol, but rather in the left. Up until that time, the lot for Hashem always came up in the right. The great Goin, Rav Yosef David, cites this particular posuk and notes that the Kohen Gadol should have contemplated what was the reason for this occurrence. The Kohen Gadol should have questioned, Aye Hashem, where is the lot of Hashem that used to be drawn in the right hand? We know that the left hand represents the attribute of din, strict justice. The right is the attribute of loving mercy, rachamim. Yet, Klal Yisrael didn't heed the sign. They didn't reflect upon the deterioration of the relationship with their Father in Heaven. This was obviously indicative of the general spiritual decline. This ultimately led to the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh. Similarly, in our days, when we observe the various distressing situations and the events throughout the world, we should be asking, Aye Hashem, where is the glory of Hashem? Where is our destiny that should be coming up in the right hand on the side of loving kindness? Why is it that at times our lot is switched to the left hand, the one of Din? The Chovetz Chaim once informed a group of people that he was offering a large sum of money to anyone that could find a poor person that was so impoverished that he didn't even have a chair to sit on. Eagerly, an entire group went throughout the town, each one hoping that he would be the recipient of the reward. After a few days of intense searching, the people returned to the Chovetz Chaim. They reported that although they had met many very poor people, they could not find even one person who didn't have a chair. The Chovetz Chaim sadly noted, You should know that Hashem is poorer than all of the indigent people in the world, for Hashem doesn't even have a chair that's intact. The chair of Hashem is not whole. During this time of introspection, we should remember each and every day to ask with great love and respect, Aye Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
JM in the AM as we continue with her Iberal wine and his discussion about what we read tonight, Megillas Echa at JM in the AM. I have on hand, the rest of it they can invest. Now, no actuaries, uh, let's say, I'll say uh, 80,000 policies come due. No actuary can tell you which 80,000 policies. But they're accurate within 1% that 80,000 policies have come through. So the Rambam says that was the same thing. God only told Abram that their people would be enslaved. Who will enslave them? God left that up to anybody who wanted to do it. Egyptians chose to do it. They didn't have to do it. That's the Rambam's theory, which is very sophisticated. The Ramban's theory is there's slavery and slavery. You know, you can be nice to your slaves, you can be cruel to your slaves. The Egyptians were not punished for enslaving the Jewish people because that was God's will. They were punished for the cruelty that they had towards them. So here, the uh, Nodi says, uh, he complains about the cruelty. Good, so we have to be defeated. We have to be taken away in war. But, uh, for instance, the United States occupied Japan and rebuilt it. Occupied Italy and rebuilt it. There's there's a way to lose a war too. The Russians, when they uh, took over East Germany and the other satellite countries, they made sure that they felt the the revenge. So he says, Shomu ki They heard that I am broken. My sighs, hey I have no comfort. Koloi by Shomu all of my enemies heard of my troubles. So soon they rejoiced in my troubles. Kiato Asiso. It's not them. You did it, God. Not them. Eveso Yom Koroso. You will bring a day and call upon them too. Viu Chamoni. Their turn will come also. The long history of the Jewish people. Everyone that has oppressed the Jewish people has eventually fallen. That's a lesson that uh, one would think that the world would learn, but uh, there are many lessons that go unnoticed. So uh, in our time, for instance, the collapse of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union was engineered by the Jews, by the refuseliks and the pressure World Jewry, let my people go, all the demonstrations, everything that brought down the Soviet Union. I would say, uh, you know, Sharansky is riding around in a Volvo, and he's a minister in the government, right? And Gorbachev is doing pizza commercials. How's that? So we'll see yet, right? The, Churchill said that the uh, wheels of history grind exceedingly slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. Everybody gets paid. So he says, the Navi says, you come on, they'll also feel it, right? They have no right to be that brutal. Friends of mine that have gone back to Lithuania to see uh, 
fact, I have a cousin that went back to see our old hometown. So when he came there, you know, so all of our houses are still there. So he said, so when he knocked on the door of my grandfather's house, so people who opened the door were afraid that he was coming to take the house back. As though we would like to move back to Lithuania. But he said, wherever he went, they all said the same thing. They said, you know, it was a mistake to get rid of the Jews. Because, you know, the, the countries are nothing. Spain was a world empire before it got rid of the Jews. So in the long run, you come on me. They will also experience it. Toho that all of their evil come before you. How they behave. He simply calls for revenge. Let them taste what it looks like. There are enormous forest fires today in France that were set on purpose. People died over there. Millions of dollars worth of damage to houses. They can't get it under control. So the French president says it's terrorism. Yeah. See how you like it. Burned down uh, two years ago, uh, burned down half the forest in the Galilee. That's not terrorism, that's freedom fighting. We'll see how it plays out. I am full with sighs, and my heart is broken. I want to. Uh, Go to the third chapter. The second chapter is pretty much a repeat of the first chapter. Same ideas. The third chapter I told you was the chapter that the Novi Urbio wrote in the dungeon. Ania Gever, I am the person. I'm not telling you stories, I'm telling you my what happened to me. <coughs> I saw the afflictions, the shaven of Rosso, I suffered from the whip of anger. Osi Nahag Bayole Choshet Lor, I was led into darkness, not into light. Part of being in the dungeon is darkness. Ahdi Yoshu, that God will return to me. Yapok Yodo Kalayon. His hand will turn away. So here we have, I mentioned to you, we have three psukim with olive, we're going to have three psukim with bays, etc. The Lord placed me in the midst of darkness as though I were dead already. So it's interesting, the Talmud Bavli, the Gemara says, the Mahashaki Moshivani, that's the Talmud Bavli, because it was created in the exile. 
And therefore it is obtuse, it's hard, it's dark. It's trying to read without a light. Because it's a product of exile. God is like a bear who uh, lies in ambush. I mentioned you, I just came from the Canadian Rockies. You know, the bears come down to fish for breakfast. They position themselves right at the point in the river where the salmon jump. He's waiting for them. Arivamistarim, like a lion crouching in a hidden place. Now that's the description of troubles being, uh, so to speak, blindsided by events. I was mocked by all of my people. The Nodi was mocked. People said he's crazy. They make songs about me. To mock me. He's Biani Bamrori. I have been satiated by having Bitter things happen. Irvani lana. Lana is a, a bitter herb, like a vermouth. Very bitter herb. Batiznach misholom nafshi. So my heart has no... Sholom here means has no serenity. Bashisi tova. I've given up that anything good will happen to me. And all he says in his desperation... Sitting in the dungeon. Omar and I said, Ovadnitsky, I have lost my eternity. Popubina, the Sochalti, the children, my generations. Now, Hashem, God has taken all of that away from me. And then he comforts himself in Vosukhov Beit. You have to see this as a dialogue between himself and himself between the depths of his depression and then the resurrection of his faith in spite of the depression. So, God's mercy knows no end. Not allowed to give up. It's also the lesson of Jewish history, the lesson of individuals. A person's will makes a great difference. Two people, God forbid, can have the same disease, one person is strong about it and can be cured. The other person gives up and then the disease conquers. Both get the same treatment. No end to the chesed of the revolution. His mercy is never ending. Every morning there are new things. How do we know what tomorrow brings? Faith in you is what gives me the ability to continue. My share of God is my soul. I'm a piece of God. 
Therefore, I will pray to him, I will hope on to him, I will not give up hope. Tov Hashem Latova. God gives good to those who hope on to him, Lanefesh Tibushemu, to the soul that truly seeks him. Tov Yochil Vidumo. The best thing is to hope into God and do moment to be quiet. Not to say foolish things. The Chuas Hashem. And then one will see the salvation of God. A person should be accustomed from youth to carry the yoke of responsibility. So the Gemara says that we have a choice of yokes. Nobody passes without having to carry a yoke. So you can choose what yoke you want to have. There are people who commit suicide because their sports team lost. In the United States, there are always uh, 200 suicides after the Super Bowl. Because that's the yoke that they're carrying. Apostle says, A person is born for toil. Happy is the person that the toil is in positive things and does things for Torah, for Jewish people, for humanity, helps people. I, uh, when I was in Muncie, so uh, Muncie is the best of all worlds because it has a Catholic hospital with Jewish doctors. You reverse it and uh, we have a problem. And the woman that ran the hospital, the nun who ran the hospital, the sister, so she was a great fundraiser. I knew her. I remember I was walking once in the hospital in the end of June, and she came running over to me, and she said, Rabbi, she said, can you get me? There's a few spaces left here in the hospital for interns. She said, can you get me the guys with the beanies? She said, because they, you know, it's not a, just a job, but uh, then, you're, you're, then you're doing God's work. A doctor is doing God's work. Roll back home. Right? But if a doctor is only in it for something else, so then that's a different yoke that he's carrying. Same thing is true of every profession, of every walk in life. So, Ashrei Mi Shamolo Batoru. The yoke that you carry is that of godliness of Torah, so then that's the yoke, right? But you can't expect to go through life without any yoke. That doesn't happen. So that's what the Novi says, to train ourselves from our youth uh, to carry the yoke in order that our lives will be a positive contribution. This concludes this lecture. J.M. in the A.M. with our barrel wine as we get ready for tonight. Tonight, of course, the uh, observance of Tisha B'Av. Um, we'll, we'll start by Wine's uh, exploration of uh, Kinnis in just a moment, and then we'll break uh, toward the top of the hour 
Speak to Michael Rothschild from the Chavez Chaim Heritage Foundation. They have a major event going on tomorrow, and we'll explain all of that. Don't forget, Matis hosts on Wednesday with the um, stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach for the 10th of Av. Looking forward to that. Thursday, we're with Yom NCSY in Israel. Friday, we're with Michlelet and the NCSY summer programs in Israel. Big thank you to the Inbal Hotel, who have, uh, again, secured their position as our official broadcast home and uh, home base when we're in the Holy Land. Much appreciated. So a big thank you to uh, the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his overview of Kinnis is where we start this next segment at JM in the AM. Today and tomorrow I'm going to uh, discuss with you the uh, keynote, the uh, poetry, the elegies that are said on uh, Tisha B'Av. So today I want to give you a general uh, understanding and who the authors are. And tomorrow we will... uh, spend some time on the actual keynote themselves. Uh, the original keynote is naturally the Book of Eicha, of which uh, the Novi uh, composed. And the word kino is found in the Novi, in Yirmiyo. And the kino was a form of mourning. Uh, it was uh, accepted in the ancient world and in, uh, even in the medieval world that there were professional mourners. That the family, uh, God forbid, a, a funeral took place, would hire professional mourners. Usually women that would come and weep. And uh, in so doing, they would inspire others uh, to that emotion as well. The Novi says, Kiru lam call the weepers, call in the professional mourners. So to us that's a little bizarre, because we're not into weeping that much anyway. In the Western world it is no longer macho to weep. Therefore, uh, uh, these events, uh, such as a funeral, God forbid, are oftentimes very sterile, unemotional. Let's get it over with. But uh, in the uh, ancient world, and I mentioned to you, even in the medieval world, it was uh, it was an event, not just an event for the family that was directly involved, but it was an event for everyone. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, this was an honored profession uh, to be a professional uh, weeper. Later in Jewish life, there were professional eulogy sayers who would uh, be maspid, who would say the hespid. And that was their uh, forte, so to speak. And there's an entire literature of hespading, of uh, eulogies. Now again, it has changed so in this world that uh, I barely recognize. But for instance, in my youth, uh, if there was a funeral, God forbid, no member of the family would get up to speak. 
ones that spoke were always outside the family. Rabbis, teachers, uh, communal people. But it was unheard of that, for instance, a son or a daughter uh, should speak at a funeral regarding a deceased parent. Uh, But that has uh, turned around 180 degrees today, uh, where it's uh, de rigueur, it's the accepted practice. Uh, So in these matters, uh, things change. So what was once bizarre, uh, or rather what was once normal, may appear to us today to be bizarre, and what we think is normal would perhaps appear to be bizarre to them. So you had the, these uh, people that said keynote. Now, the uh, in uh, Jewish life, the expression of poetry uh, found an outlet basically in religious life though there was an outlet in secular poetry as well. And uh, in uh, two areas uh, was uh, poetry uh, emphasized. One was the keynote that we're going to discuss uh, that has to do with Tisha B'Av, and the other has to do with ritual poetry such as Slichot, which exist before the Yom Noraim, or prayers in the middle of the prayer service, which were called Yotzrot. And uh, I'll, I'll try and discuss a little of that as well. But that's where poetry was concentrated. And uh, in, during the Golden Age of Spain, so then there was a great deal of secular poetry also, uh, written by great men, and because it was the spirit of the times, the Spanish world that they lived in was a world of poems. And, uh, for instance, if you went to visit somebody, so today we bring a bottle of wine or uh, candy or something, then they brought a poem. And uh, if you went to a funeral, God forbid, so then you brought a poem, which was a eulogy, or to the house of the person who was mourning. And uh, everybody tried their hand at poetry. Some were very great at it. And we also have a form of poetry that we call Zmirot, that we sing uh, at the Sabbath meals. For instance, there's a great poem... Uh, so that Zemer was written by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, who lived in the 12th century, and to a great extent he is the poet laureate of the Jewish people. But he wrote that poem for a Sheva Brachot on Shabbat, between a kala named uh, a chatan named Yonah and a kala named Menucha, and it's a play on Shabbat and on the Sheva Bracha, right? Yonah, the Choson, found Menucha, found Manoah. 
And Yonah also means it's the symbol of the Jewish people. And Manoach is the symbol of Shabbat. So it's that play on words. And they, so he gave it as a, pers- as a present for the Sheva Brachot. But it became so popular and well accepted that uh, everybody sings it today. So we live in a world that's pretty dry. You know, it's, our world is uh, pretty gray. There's not much of a flash of color to it. But it wasn't always that way in the Jewish world. And uh, poetry was an accepted form of uh, art, creativity. And as I mentioned, uh, almost everybody tried their hand at it. For instance, we have the Slichot from Rashi uh, that we recite, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rashi felt impelled somehow to write a poem because of the fact that everybody was writing poems. Uh, the most, uh, the, the earliest uh, poet is uh, a man called Rabbi Elozer HaKalir. In fact, over half of the keynote that we're going to recite on Tisha B'Av were written by him. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine is uh, giving us an overview of Kinnis, as is our uh, um, annual custom here on the uh, day of the era of Tishabov. Uh, we begin Tishabov tonight in New York just after 8 p.m. And uh, tomorrow morning we will have live Kinnis on the air. Rabbi Goldwasser has uh, again agreed graciously, and I thank him, to uh, conduct with us a Kinnis service that we'll do live at 7.30 Eastern time tomorrow morning. If you're not able to get to shul or if you want your synagogue experience enhanced either before going to shul or after coming home from shul. I strongly suggest you join us for the kinnis tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. Also a reminder that the Mincha service, bring your talus and tefillin to the Isaiah Wall across the street from the United Nations, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Um, That's happening at 2 p.m., under the leadership of Triple S J and Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, and um, I've been there many times, as most of you know, is a very inspiring tefillah. One of the things that has really become a um, a regular occurrence on Tisha B'av is a presentation by the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. Each year, something different. Each year, very inspiring. Each year, an amazing roster of rabbinic figures who present in the annual Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation presentation. Um, If you go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, all the details about what's happening tomorrow in 16 countries and 700 sites is there online. The director of the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation is our good friend Michael Rothschild, who is with us live via telephone. Michael, good morning. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Hi, good morning. How are you? Baruch Hashem, it is pretty amazing that your program, uh, which is how many years now that you're doing this? It's about, I think it's about 20 years now. Pretty amazing. I don't remember the exact, but it's about 20. Uh, 16 countries, 700 sites, and it seems no matter where you go, any Jewish community of any significance has at least one, if not more, showings of the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation presentation. Tell us about the title and content of this year's presentation. 
Thank you so much. First of all, thank you for, for, for inviting me to speak on, on your show. It is a COVID, and it's a COVID to reach out to so many people before Tishabov and tell them about this program, because I think that this program is a real life changer. And the title of this, of, of this year's program is Amuna for Life, How to Master Life's Challenges with Amuna and Bitochen. And there's a number of reasons we chose this, but one of the certainly one of the important reasons we chose this is because we know that right now there are many, many people in many different places that are going through a lot of pain, and that are having indecisiveness, that are having challenges, and therefore we wanted to spend some time really getting to the depth of understanding what emuna and bitachon, faith in Hashem is, and how it really how we're supposed to have it, and when we do have it, how magically it impacts in our life. Mm. That's the thing. It happens to be that Rav Dovet Abu Chatzir, who's one of the very special Rabbonim Gedolim in Eretz Yisrael, he went recently to speak to Rav Aaron Leib Steinman, who's the Godel Ador in Eretz Yisrael, and he said, what is the issue that Klal Yisrael, that the Jewish people should really focus on? And he said they should focus on working on Emuna and, and, and understanding that everything comes from Hashem and that, that, that nothing is in the hands of people and that that is what the essence of this um, Tisha B'Av program is. But the other aspect is is that when somebody has Emuna, then all of the mitzvahs, ben onam l'chaver, how they relate to people, really is impacted very significantly. To give you an example, you know that the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation's main focus is Lashon Hara, not getting people to speak bad about each other. Well, if somebody has a real emuna, then they're going to understand, you know, if somebody hurt me, then, you know, everything comes from Hashem. It's not, this person was just, the, so to speak, the bank teller to, to give me the thing that, I, that, that Hashem wanted to give me. For whatever reason, He wanted me to grow in, in this issue. So when you have a Muna, all of the the way you treat your fellow man is going to be impacted significantly, and that is like a very important aspect of bringing a Muna to people on Tisha Oh, very, very important lesson, and as you just described, it really broadens the whole area of power of speech. It, uh, it, it tells us that not only do we have to safeguard what we say and encourage people not to speak as, you know, any Lashon Hara, but on top of that, it's really linked to faith to Amuna. Never even thought of that. And uh, I assume all the rabbis who are part of the presentation tomorrow uh, will in some way address that issue. They're not all of them, because we, we, have, we have two programs. We have a program A and a program B, and the program A is, is, is more for a Haredi audience and the program B, because we had so many requests from other, you know, from, from outside the Haredi um, environment to get to, to have a program. So we created two programs, which are both really amazing, and in the end, most places actually show both. But since we had six people speaking on the same topic, what we did is we took different aspects of the topic. So to give you an example, Rabbi Wallerstein and Rabbi Ephraim Shapiro aren't speaking on the topic of Ben Onam L'Chaver of Lashon or anything like that. They're speaking about when difficult things happen to us, and it's very hard for us to internalize and to figure out exactly what Hashem is doing and why He's doing it and what's the growth potential, they're talking about that issue. Got it. Right. All right, very good. Um, Am I right that you use different rabbis each year, or are there some people We do. No, we do. We do use different rabbis each year, yeah. Yeah, because, like, we want to change it up so that, you know, if you use the same people every year, even though it's a whole year apart, it wouldn't be that exciting. So we always change from year to year. Michael Rothschild with us. Powerofspeech.org has all the details. Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. Are you amazed that everywhere you go, practically on this planet, you could find a Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation program for Tisha B'Av at some point? 
So Baruch Hashem, Hashem has been very good to us. Just to tell you two of the interesting places yeah. that, that we've been. One is we ha- we've had showings in the Congo, in, in Africa. <laughs> and you're wondering, like, how, you know, you could just imagine a bunch of, like, natives sitting around with their spears, like, looking <laughs> at, at this uh, Tishba event. It's not exactly like that. There's a Chabad community there. And actually, one year we asked people to take pictures of the different sites and send it into us. And, and, and we saw that, you know, the Congo there sitting there, and it was not Africans. It was actually Jews sitting around. It was a Chabad community. That was one. Another interesting one was that, that uh, somebody who wasn't from was going to be on the QEW, the, the, sh- the, the cruise liner that goes between England and America, and they were going to be there on Tishabov. So they asked us if if they could show the program on the boat. No way. So they got the pr- permission on the boat. It was on the program of the QEW was Tishabov program Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, and seventeen people sh- showed up from the boat. Unbelievable! You never know, huh? You never know who you're going to attract. You never know who's going to be watching. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Yeah, Pretty yeah. It's remarkable. really been. It's it's really international, and it, it happens to be. It's there's a, there's a, about fifty thousand people attend, and it's it's the largest annual Torah event in the world because it, it, the, the what's bigger obviously is the Siemashas, but that's right. once every seven years. Right. But as an annual Torah event, we have fifty thousand people. So. Um, so it's 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 really amazing, and it's not just fifty thousand people. It's fifty thousand people on Tisha because on Tisha B'av, Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem was really trying to teach us the most powerful lesson by burning down his base of English and putting us into Golas. How important the this this you know the, these issues of Ben Amulchaver are. So exactly on that day, we're all getting together. But I want to tell you two other things. Sure. Number one is is that we have a very special gift for people. Every year we we create materials, you know, posters and table cards and all different types of things that people could take home with them and take the message with them. And it's really been something that people like, and we see it wherever we go in different homes. This year, we're doing all of that, but we did one extra thing, which is really remarkable, which is we, we wrote a book called Lishuascha Kivisi Hashem, Hashem, I Long for Your Salvation. And this is a, 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 a it's an 84-page book a beautiful book on Emunah and Bitochen, and it explains that when difficult things happen in our life, there's a very special plan from Hashem, although certainly we can't know exactly what the plan is, but in broad strokes, there's many things that are actually amazing things that happen, believe it or not, when people go through challenges, and this book covers that. And we've just shown it to a few people. I mean, we sent it out to our sites. A few people took a look at it. We already got numerous calls from people to say, how can I get more copies, which are, you know, free, that we got a call from High Lifeline, and they say, you know what, this book is amazing. We'd like to give it to everybody who we visit in the hospital. Mm. So this is a book that you could get for free when you come to the Tisha B'Av event. The other thing is, if anybody's still interested in, in, in sponsoring um, a, 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 one of the sites, they could do it as a schus for Fushlem or, or, or as, a, as a schus for, for you know, Lui Nishmas for somebody in memory of somebody. There's still time to do that in, in at least some of the sites. If they go to powerspeech.org, um, I think it's slash Tishabov. They could go, or it's just powerspeech.org. They could they could find out how to sponsor, or there's a phone number. Is that all right if I give a phone number? Yeah, of course. Okay, it's 
3505. That's the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation number 3523505 and its extension um, 113. And they could sponsor if they want. It's it's an amazing event. We have had the most amazing stories from people about the after the Tishbev event, that people who really, really transform their life from this. It's, it's, generally, I don't believe that people can transform their life on from one sheer, but in this particular case, um, because maybe Tishbev is such a day when the, a, a Jew's neshama is so open to hearing messages, people have uh, have really changed their lives and made tremendous strides in their in their Ben Yeah, I was just going to say that Tishbev itself, because of the atmosphere. Uh, may lend itself to be even more open to that type of change. Um, when people go to powerofspeech.org, I mean, you know we have listeners everywhere, uh, people who are looking for a site. Can they search easily and find uh, in their state or in their country a site where they can watch the uh, the uh, presentation? They can, yes, they can. I, I believe, though, that I'm, I'm, you know, the one thing I'm, I, it's powerspeech.org. I think maybe you have to say slash Tish above. Okay. I'm not sure if you have to say that or not. But power of speech should lead you, either way, it should lead you to that. And, and it, it covers everywhere in North America. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is incredible how many sites you have. Uh, it's uh, it's a, uh, the annual Chavitz Chaim Heritage Foundation event. And it happens uh, in all these different sites, 700 around the world. Um, pretty remarkable information. Contact the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. You can log on powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org. And chances are that in your neighborhood it is being shown somewhere. There is probably a flyer hanging in your shul right now. <laughs> Michael Rothschild, an easy fast to you, and thank you for bringing thank us this you. great presentation. Okay, thank you so much. Keep up your great work. Greatly thank appreciate you. that. Michael Rothschild, Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. They are doing remarkable work, and the powerofspeech.org tells you about what they're doing tomorrow all through the world. Monday morning on this Erev Tishabov here at JM in the AM as we continue. Rabbi Beryl Wine is doing an overview of Kinnis for us as we continue on this Erev Tishabov. Don't forget tomorrow, Tishabov Mincha at the Isaiah Wall happens at 2 p.m. Bring your towels and fillin. Don't forget 6.30 tomorrow night, Charlie Harari helps wrap up with Project Inspire, helps wrap up Tishabov with everybody here at the Nahum Siegel Network, 6.30 tomorrow night Eastern Time, right here on NSN. Uh, don't forget that on Wednesday, Matis will be hosting the uh, Stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach 10th of Av uh, annual event. Don't forget Thursday will be in Israel with Yom NCSY, and Friday will be in Israel with the NCSY summer programs live from Michalelet. It's all happening this week, a very exciting week already, believe it or not, a week that starts with Erev Tishabov. Is turning out to be an exciting week here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Jam the AM continues with our barrel wine. Of the poet. And he wrote uh, uh, Yotzrot for uh, uh, every Shabbos of the year, every Shabbat of the year, every Parsha, and for every holiday. We recite many of his poems in our Mavzor for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The structure of the poem is as follows. The structure of how it is. It's called Yotzrot, but because uh, the first place where they introduced, because it's a question in Halakha, whether you can say a poem in the middle of Davni, right? Whether or not that's a hefzik. Today, because of the opposition of the Golan of Vilna, mainly, to the introduction of poems in the middle of the evening, so the uh, 
the audience for uh, poetry in the middle of davening has been diminished. But there was a time in the Jewish world where everybody said Yotzot, and everybody said the Piyutim, and uh, you know, the more the merrier, and especially on Yom Kippur when you had nothing to do all day. So then they put in all the poems that they could. So uh, it's called Yotzrot because it was introduced in the bracha of Orchato Hashem Elokeinu Melacholom Yotzeror Uvore Chose Chose Shalom Uvore Sakol. So after that bracha, they inserted poems. So those poems were called Yotzrot after the word Yotzer. Then there were poems that were called Zulat because of the fact that they were introduced in the middle of the kedusha Kodosh Kodosh Kodosh. Uh, then there were poems that were called uh, Geula, because they were introduced in the middle of the bracha Goal Yisrael. And then in the repetition of the Shemon Asra, we had things that were called Krovot, the near poems, which were right in the beginning, and then poems in Kedusha. So today they almost universally, no one recites poems in Kedusha anymore. But... Uh, if you have an old Mazar, uh, old European Mazar to look at, you'll see that there are long passages to be said uh, in, uh, in uh, the middle of Kedusha, poems that were recited. Uh, so that became common, that became that accepted, and uh, the poems were uh, religious in nature. As I mentioned, Rabbi Lozer Akalir is the most prolific of all of them. There was another Babylonian poet by the name of Yanai, Piyuta Yanai, the poems of Yanai, uh, but uh, those poems are only recited in certain communities in the world. They never achieved the popularity that Rabbi Lozer Akalir did. Now, who is Rabbi Lozer Akalir? So, like, all things in the Jewish world, there are different opinions. Tosfus mentions that Rebbe Lozar Kalir was the Tano Rebbe Lozar Shimon, the son of Rebbe Shimon ben Yochoi, which would uh, date him very early, date him back to uh, uh, the second century before the com- at the second century after the Common Era. And also would give him a stature of being a Tana. However, uh, most of the other uh, uh, scholars and commentators uh, say that uh, Rabbi Khalir is not the Tana, Rabbi but rather he is a uh, Babylonian or Balkan Jew uh, who lived in probably the 7th or 8th century and wrote those poems. Now, Rabbi Lozer HaKalir takes great liberty with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, as you know, is a very sparse language. It has a very small base of vocabulary. That's why, for instance, in modern Hebrew, we have to import so many words, because the language is in the English, for instance, is an enormously rich language in terms of words and synonyms. But Hebrew is very tight, very small based. So what he did is he took nouns and he uh, 
made them into verbs. Took verbs and made them into nouns. He has a famous statement of one of his poems, Admon Kibot. Now that's a, we say that on Yom Kippur, this poem. Admon, the red one, meaning Esau. Kibot, when he looked. When he looked to see Yaakov's family and his wife and his children attempted to uh, give them the evil eye, so to speak. Now, so the Admon is an invention of his. Bot is certainly an invention of his. There's no Hebrew word bot. But because of the poetic structure, he, to keep the meter and to keep the rhyme, so he took liberties with the language. Because of the fact that he took liberties with the language, uh, Rabbeinu Avrom Ibn Ezra, who was a poet in his own right, uh, and a critic, in his commentary to Kohelis, towards the end of the uh, fourth chapter, beginning of the fifth chapter, or maybe it's towards the end of the fifth chapter, he takes on Revelozor Kalir head on. And he says, uh, really, uh, very negative things about his poetry. How he took those liberties with the old language. But uh, history voted for Revelozor Kalir. The Jewish people took his poems and inserted them everywhere in their ritual service. And uh, therefore, in the book of Kinot, which has, I think, 52 poems, there are 27 or 28 are from him. The first 21 in a row are his. And the style of the uh, poems... Uh, is to take verses from the book of Eicha itself and to build a poem. That, in other words, the verse becomes the refrain in the poem. Now, Rebbe Lozer HaKalir uh, was a master of uh, knowing uh, Talmud and Midrash. So therefore, you have to be a Lamdan to be able to figure out his poem. And it's not easy to do so. And in fact, uh, there are certain riddles in his poems that have remained unsolved until today. Just as there is a famous riddle, that's another thing that was in the Jewish world, is that people wrote riddles. And you have to figure it out. So there's a riddle in the introduction of the Eben Ezra, the Chumash Breshes, uh, that for uh, the last thousand years almost, people are trying to figure out what the answer to the riddle is, and no one has ever come up with the answer yet. It's like that math problem. What there's a famous math problem for which no one there's a prize of millions of dollars if you can figure out the. There's more money if you can figure out where Saddam Hussein is, but the. Uh, but there is a prize for. Uh, for solving this math problem. So there are riddles, uh, you know. So again, it looks to us bizarre. I mean, in the, you know, none of, uh, none of our scholars today uh, occupy themselves with such things. 
But again, in the Middle Ages, and the pre-Middle Ages, uh, this was common. It was intellectual exercise. It was the spirit of the times. And the Jews always were swayed by whatever the spirit of the times was, at least culturally. So you have here this bulk of Kinos of Revelozer Akalir. The bulk of Kinos is built upon uh, the book of Eicha, and almost every Kino uses uh, a verse from Eicha as being a uh, refrain, a base for, uh, for the poetry that follows. Now what's interesting in the keynote of, uh, is that uh, the expression of sorrow is always uh, intense and personal. It's almost written in first person, second person. It's not something that happened to the Jewish people. It's something that happened to me. And that is how the author portrays it. That's how the poet portrays it. Because we all know that uh, we somehow are able to be sanguine about other people's troubles, God forbid. But if, God forbid, we have trouble, so then we're a little more uh, focused. That's what they say, you know, the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is that if it's you, it's minor surgery, and if it's me, it's major surgery. In the uh, keynote, uh, the day of Tisha has been a sad day for the Jewish people, generally. Uh, The first uh, Tisha was in the desert in when they left Egypt, uh, when the Maraglim came back, the spies came back and gave the negative report regarding the land of Israel. So it says, Vayifku balai lahu, and that night did the Jewish people weep. They said, where are you taking us? We're going to die. The, our enemies will overwhelm us. It's suicidal for us to go to Israel. He took us out of Egypt to die here in the desert. So they wept. So the Medrash says, the famous Medrash, uh, you weep tonight really for no reason, but I will give you reason throughout history to weep on this night. So uh, the first Tisha B'Av is in the desert. The first temple is destroyed on the ninth of Av. The second temple began burning in the late afternoon of the ninth of Av and burned throughout the tenth of Av. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan said that I would have decreed to fast on the 10th of all. But that would have been uh, asking too much of the people to have to fast two days consecutively. And since the 9th of all was established already, so we fast on the 9th of all because uh, the beginning of the Churban is the 9th of all. The city of Betar, which was the last stronghold of Bar Kokhba and his rebellion, fell on Tisha B'av to the Romans in the year 139. And that marked the end of the rebellion. The Romans slaughtered the uh, inhabitants of the city. Uh, so the 9th of Av has always been a uh, black-letter day on the Jewish calendar. In 1492, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the last days to leave fell on the 9th of August. 
It's interesting. Columbus set 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 sail for the attempted to set sail for the New World on the ninth of August, but he was unable to clear the harbor because of the mass of ships carrying Jews away. So he had to wait till the traffic, the harbor master, would, would allow him to go. Just as an aside, Columbus's voyage was financed by Jews. Abraham Senor was one of the wealthiest Jews in Spain. So uh, there's an irony in the, in the ninth of all, at least as far as the Jewish people are concerned. Because when he set sail uh, 511 years ago, uh, no one imagined that continent and the country that he would discover would one day be a haven for the Jewish people in another time of terrible events. Uh, First World War uh, began its hostilities around the 9th of August. It was never a good time for us. Therefore, in the keynote are uh, poems, elegies, weeping about other events than the destruction of the temple itself. There is a long poem uh, written about the Crusades, the destruction of the Jewish communities of Spires and Worms and Mainz in 1096 by the First Crusade. Uh, there is a long poem written by the Maram of Rutenberg, the mayor of Rutenberg, who is the... Uh, teacher and Rebbe of the Rosh, of Rabbeinu Osher, one of the great men of Ashkenazic Jewry, uh, regarding the fact that the uh, king of France, Louis IX, in 1240, uh, burned all of the copies of the Talmud that were extant in France uh, in the courtyard of the Louvre, you know where the new pyramid is today, the new museum of the Louvre. So right there is where all of the uh, books of the Talmud scrolls were gathered and burned. That really marked the end of Jewish France, and then the Jews were expelled, and uh, all the yeshivas closed, and they had the balitosis, etc., and they moved east to Germany and Bohemia and eventually to Poland. The story about the burning of the books uh, is also instructive uh, because it speaks to zealotry, which is a very uh, combustible, volatile uh, emotion in the Jewish world. Uh, After the Rambam died, there were those who objected strongly Uh, to ideas and works uh, that he had written. Uh, They objected to the Sefer Hamada, uh, which is the first section of the Yorah Chazoka, the Mishnah Torah, because of its philosophic, rational bent. And they objected to the things that he said in the Morin Nebuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed. And... uh, there, were, there raged a cultural war for about 150 years. 
regarding the books of the Rambam. The Rambam's greatest defenders lived in Provence, in southern France, and his greatest detractors lived in Provence. And uh, as unfortunately usually happens, when it comes to matters such as this, banning books, uh, disagreeing with people, calling other people an optochorus, so things get out of hand. Not only do they get out of hand, then it becomes almost a religious duty to be an idiot. And what happened was uh, that uh, certain zealots uh, went to the church and informed the church that the books of the Rambam were strongly anti-Christian. Not only anti-Christian, but that they were uh, insulting and mocking to Christianity. And the church therefore ordered uh, that the books of the Rambam be burned. In Montpellier and other places in Provence. And the zealots rejoiced in the fact that the books were to be burned. But then uh, when the Talmud was burned, uh, not long thereafter, so then many of the rabbis said, you see that in heaven they voted for the Rambam. And in effect, uh, once you start to burn books, so, uh, you know, once you tell the church that it's, the Jews are happy for you to burn their books, so then they burn other books too. Who's going to draw the line? The famous uh, story about the great Rabbeinu Yonah, even Gerundi, Girona. So Rabbeinu Yonah originally was one of the strong opponents of the Rambam. And he uh, was a gifted orator. He traveled to many towns and cities in northern Spain and southern France, Provence, to speak against the Rambam's works. After the books of the Rambam were burned, and after the Talmud was burned, he regretted his behavior. He went back to every city that he spoke in, and he mounted the pulpit and said, I was wrong. I should never have done so. And as a further act of penance, he wrote what is one of the great books of Musser philosophy, uh, Jewish uh, thought, called Shari Tshuva, Gates of Repentance. So uh, that whole uh, incident in Jewish history, it's an incident that covers almost 150 years and involves a lot of great men. The, the Ramban, for instance, was the Rambam's great defender. The Ritva was the Rambam's great defender. But uh, there were great men on the other side, too. The Adrama, Reb Meir Aledi Abulachia, uh, was a strong critic of the Rambam. The Rambam himself expected it to happen. He writes in his, he writes a letter in which he says that he, I have no doubt that all of this will be controversial and that uh, people will call me all sorts of names, etc. But he said, when it all will settle down after a generation or two, he says it so uh, strongly. He says, when the jealousies and pettinesses will disappear, 
because they'll all be dead. So he said, then history will judge me, judge my works. And he uh, certainly hit the nail on the head. And history has certainly voted for the Rambam. So we have this Kina of a mayor of Rottenburg. It begins, Shali, Srufa, Boesh. You are burned in the fire. So many people think that it refers to the temple that was burned in the fire. He's not talking about the temple. That wasn't written. It was written about the Torah that was written, the, the books of the Balitosvas, all the scrolls of the Talmud that were burned. So you have a keynote for that also. In the Sephardic set of keynote, we have keynote for the expulsion from Spain, which uh, probably until the Holocaust was the most traumatic event in the history of the Jewish people, the exile. Jews were in Spain from the 600s, but they were there 800 years. Not only the Jews were there, they were they were the country. I mean, they were the commerce and the government and the poetry and the, the, the culture, everything. You couldn't think that there would be a Spain without Jews. And the Jews were Spanish to the core. You know, so if you live in a place for 800 years, you think you're going to live there forever, right? But apparently nothing is forever. Jews lived in Poland for 800 years also, and that also didn't last. What are we were in North America about 150 years, so it's young yet. Even though the Jews in America are convinced that it's also forever. I got a call from the uh, certain community, which I will not name, uh, that they're celebrating their centennial, 100 years in the country. They're having a big celebration. They invited me to come to be one of the speakers for their uh, events. And then uh, the man ruefully said, you better come this time because I don't know if a hundred years from now there will be another one. So there is a certain sensation of the fact that it may not be forever. But the Jews were in Spain. It was going to be forever. And then they were driven out. So there, in the Sephardic uh, keynote, uh, that exists. We have, uh, there was a great Spanish Jewish poet by the name of Shlomo Ibn Gabiro. Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, so we have keynote from him, but the Sephardim have many from him. He was enormously prolific. He also wrote a great deal of secular poetry. Uh, and uh, he wrote a poem that's called Keter Malchut, the crown of royalty. The poem has uh, 99 stanzas to it. It's magnificent in its praise of God. The entire poem is devoted to how a person should serve God. The Sephardim read that poem on the night of Kol Nidre, as part of the service. It's like a little book. Uh, Moser Rav Kook published it as a little book. It's just 
absolutely magnificent. And so he has kinos also. Sephardim have many more of his kinos in their uh, liturgy than the Ashkenazim do, but we have also his poems in our kinos. And then we have the poems of Rabbi Yudah Alevi, whom I mentioned before. So his famous kina begins, Tzion alo sishali l'shom asiraya. And uh, that poem was uh, so uh, overwhelming in its beauty and so influential that it spawned the genre of poems that begin Tzion. And they all attempted to copy his meter and his rhyme and his style. But uh, in terms of pure genius and poetry, uh, we cannot find an equal to that poem of Tzion, of Rabir Alevi. And there he has the famous phrase, Ani chinor l'chol shirayich, I am the... Uh, harp upon which all of your songs can be played. And that was taken and inserted in the uh, Hebrew song, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, which was the song of the Six-Day War. Yudah longed his entire life to come to Zion. And he eventually forsook Spain and all of its wealth. He writes... Uh, Libi b'Mizrach, ani b'Sof Marav. My heart is in the east, and I'm at the end, all the way in the west of the Mediterranean. And he said, "Until my heart and I can come together, how? What kind of life can it be?" And Rabbi Alevi comes eventually to the land of Israel. He leaves his family, he leaves his wealth, his position. And he comes to the land of Israel. What happens to him here is unknown. There's a legend that he was killed at the gates of Jerusalem by an Arab horseman. That's a legend. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he's buried here. God does certain people a favor that he doesn't allow their burial place to be known. Moshe is a prime example of that. Otherwise, they'd be selling Coca-Cola there, right? Souvenirs. You get a camel ride. You know, for a long time, the Jewish people weren't into graves. Today, graves is a big business. So where Vidal Levy's grave is, where the Ramban's grave is in this country, no one knows. But he died here. And he became the symbol, not only because of his beautiful poetry, his talent, his creativity, uh, but he also became the symbol of the Jewish longing for the land of Israel. And the Jews would never give up on their right to the land of Israel and the fact that they would eventually gather the exiles and return to the land of Israel. They would rebuild themselves in the land of Israel. So Rebuda Levi became, so to speak, our spokesman for that. One that uh, throughout the ages, uh, his song, his poetry reverberated with that idea.
And in this kina of Tzion Alosishali, uh, so to speak, everything that can be said about Jewish revival in the land of Israel is said in that poem. Like when you're done with the poem, so there's nothing more to say. Uh, the vision is laid out uh, beautifully, clearly, definitively. And uh, therefore, this poem was more than an elegy, it was an inspiration. And in the order of the keynote, therefore, they put it in the uh, last third, it begins the last third of the recitation of the keynote, because at, at the end, so to speak, we're looking for an upbeat. Even the keynote, uh, even Echo is not allowed to end on a depressing note. So we repeat the posseg again, as we learned last week. God, bring us back again. So the keynotes also don't end on a downbeat, but they end rather on a note of hope uh, that the Jewish people, uh, both individually and collectively, uh, will yet be privileged to see better days. The form, uh, the book of Kinote as we have today, was pretty much sealed by the 15th century. So the later troubles are not reflected. We have no uh, particular Kinote, for instance, for the disasters of 1648 and 1649, the pogroms in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Kozak uh, Ukrainian Rebellion, which uh, cost hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. In its time, it was the Holocaust. Relative to population, it was the ratio of the Holocaust. Almost. But we have no uh, no mention of it in the Kino. Uh, the rabbis made a special fast day in memory of it, the 20th day of Sivan. The 20th day of Sivan in the Middle Ages was a fast day over Jews in the city of Trier uh, that were uh, accused of uh, the blood libel and of desecrating the host, all of the uh, Christian accusations in the Middle Ages, and 13 Jews were slaughtered. And so they, for 13 Jews, the rabbis declared a fast day. Today, 13 Jews is a small change. It is even one bust. And uh, the, uh, the rabbis tacked on to the 20th of Sivan, therefore, the commemoration of the uh, pogroms of Chmelianitsky, the Ukrainian rebellion, etc. But we have no kina for it. And uh, except for people that read history books, uh, it's unknown, even in the Torah world, which is uh, really a sad note. There was no kina for the First World War, which uh, also uh, took at least a million Jewish lives. First of all, Jews fought on both sides in the armies. Jews fought the Austrian and Hungarian army and the German army, and Jews fought in the French army and in the Russian army 
in the British Army and eventually in the Army of the United States. But aside from that, you had a tremendous dislocation of the Jewish community in Eastern Europe because the war was fought basically in Jewish territory. And uh, so you had refugees, malnutrition, there are all the good things that come with war. And then to top it all off, then you had the Communist Revolution. So that was a tremendous disaster. But we have no keynote for that either. Now regarding the Holocaust, the Shoah of the Second World War, so we have no official keynote. But a number of keynote have been written. One was written by Rabbi Schwab of the uh, German community in Washington Heights in New York. One was written by the Bobover Rebbe in Brooklyn. One was written by the Kloisenberger Rebbe here of Natanya. And there have been a number written by Israeli Rabboni. And there are certain kihilot, there are certain congregations that recite these keynotes regarding the Shoah. One of the great tragedies of the Shoah is the fact that we have found no effective way to commemorate it. In Jewish life, anything that is not connected with halacha becomes a sterile commemoration. It loses. We're able to commemorate our exodus from Egypt because we have a Seder. We have halacha, you know, and how to run it, and the mitzvot, and everything, so it's alive. But things that are not encompassed in halacha, that have no ritual, so to speak, so then it becomes very difficult to commemorate. So whether standing silent for a minute will preserve the memory of the Shoah, I have my doubts. Though I do stand silent when a siren rings. It's no more than courtesy. But whether that, or whether museums or anything else can do it, Books, films, Schindler's List. Those are all attempts somehow to preserve the memory. But we see that memory fades. No shortage of Holocaust deniers. And there's no shortage of Holocaust forgetters. So uh, the absence of you know, an accepted official kina that would be read by the entire Jewish community and would become part of the book of kina is certainly felt. That absence is a difficult, difficult thing to deal with because of the fact that uh, therefore we, so to speak, abdicate the matter uh, to all sorts of other commemorations uh, which uh, may not stand the test of time. The uh, Book of Kinot and the Sefer Eicha, the Megillah of Eicha, have withstood almost uh, 2,000 years of time. 
which itself is a miracle. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's part of part of the tragedy of the Holocaust is that there was no one left to mourn it. It was so uh, enormous in its dimensions that no one could encompass it. And we will pay the price for the Holocaust for uh, generations and generations because of what we are missing because those people were killed. So that somehow should also be involved in the Tishabov mix of the uh, troubles and travails of the Jewish people. But the keynote, the end on a uh, on an optimistic note, as I mentioned before. We get up off the floor. And we say that there will be a better day. In our time, we have lived to see a better day. No one would have believed even 60 years ago that the Jewish world could look the way it looks today. That Torah could have been rebuilt as it has been rebuilt. And that there could be a Jewish state. That there'd be five and a half million Jews living in the land of Israel. Uh, that the Jewish community would be as influential and affluent as it is, thank God. So uh, it's not been without progress, but it's been a great cost and a great sadness and a great sacrifice. And Tishabov encompasses within it uh, encompasses within it all of those things what was, what is, and what will be. And if we see it in that sense, so then the recitation of the keynote uh, can have a relevance to us uh, far greater than just memorializing what happened uh, over 1900 years ago. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny... Destiny Foundation, Rabbi Wine is 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. Um, <clears throat> five minutes before the hour as we uh, get set for Tisha B'Av 5777, a um, encore presentation of Mayor Weingarten's Israel show dealing with the Etzel. Uh, is going to be uh, featured coming up next between 9 and 10 o'clock. There will be no uh, After Further Review sports program with Yoni Pollock. That's uh, a segment that will run every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern time, but not this week because we are at Erev Tishabov. And headlines with David Lichtenstein coming up at 11 o'clock. Um, we will get back to our regular format on Wednesday during the live lunch. Wednesday, there will be a live lunch. No live lunch till then. There will be a live lunch Wednesday. And uh, during that live lunch, we'll transition to our regular format here at um, the Nahum Siegel Network. Tomorrow morning, Kinnis with Rabbi Goldwasser. That will be a live presentation of Kinnot uh, tomorrow at 7.30 in the morning, Eastern Time. Matis with the uh, stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach special coming up on the 10th of Av this coming Wednesday. Thursday and Friday, JM and the AM broadcast from Israel. JM and the AM with Yom NCSY on Thursday, and Friday's show will feature the NCSY summer programs. That is all happening. I want to thank Michael Rothschild for joining us earlier. Information about the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation and its uh, Tisha B'Av presentation, powerofspeech.org. 
powerofspeech.org. I also remind you that Charlie Harari will be closing out Tishabov with a wonderful panel with Project Inspire this coming uh, Tishabov tomorrow starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Spend the last two hours of the fast with Charlie Harari and a distinguished panel from uh, Project Inspire. I also remind you that um, our visit to Israel, as you would suspect, uh, will be... Um, we will be the uh, guests of and have our main headquarters at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. I want to thank the Inbal Hotel. Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem will be the uh, will be our home base, which is often the case uh, over the next couple of days as we uh, broadcast from Israel with NCSY. That'll be happening. Uh, that'll be happening over the next couple of days in the Holy Land. So that's our schedule. A reminder: this coming uh, Tuesday, tomorrow, starting at two p.m. Again, tomorrow, starting at two p.m. Everyone is encouraged to be at the Isaiah Wall. Isaiah Wall is Forty Third Street, First Avenue, in New York City. Everyone is encouraged to be at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City, with your Tollison's filling. And that is uh, tomorrow, Tishabov, starting at 2 p.m. 2 o'clock for the Tishabov service. And again, please bring your Tollison's filling. And to get ready for a very inspiring Tishabov Mincha. It always is inspiring. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com. On the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up our Erev Tishabov show. Tomorrow, live Kinnis with Rabbi Goldwasser starts at 7.30. Have a good Monday till tomorrow and an easy fast. Till tomorrow, Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.